so glad you're here today. I see several new faces, and we're so excited that you have chosen to be with us, worshiping with us today. And it's always good today to have visiting with us our good friends Bob and Lynn Slisler coming from the great state of Florida, visiting with us today. We're so glad. They were members with us for many years until they decided to backslide and move to Florida to the better weather while we were all stuck up here in the cold winters. But we love them. It's always good to have them in with us. Praise God. I want to just take you on a quick journey today. We're not going to be very long, but I want to tell you a story. I want to point out to you three scriptures real quickly before I tell you my story because I want you to see something in context. So go with me here. Three scriptures. Psalms 34. This is our defining moment series. We've had three. We, this is our third, third in the defining moments. We talked about the defining moment of Peter's life. We talked about last week the defining moments of Barabbas. And so we're going to go a little step further. We're going to get out of the Gospels for the first time in a while. We're going to go back to a very familiar character in Scripture, and that would be David, and talk about the defining moments of David. Psalms 34, and we're going to read one verse, verse number 18. It says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such as have a contrite spirit. I want to break that down for you in the way those words actually mean. It literally means this. The Lord is near to those who have a shattered or crippled inner man. And He saves those who have a, have emotions that have been crushed to powder. Literally, that's what it means. God comes near to those who have shattered and crippled inner man. And He saves those whose emotions have been crushed to powder. Psalms 51 verse 5, another verse I want to pull your attention to. Psalms 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought, this is David talking, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. And finally, verse 60, uh, of Psalm 69 verse number 5 says this, O oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O oh Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because of your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. And verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien. Everybody said alien. Alien to my mother's children. These three passages of Scripture, I know there is a multiple amount of context that they could take in this. But when you stitch them together, there is something. And there's more in there. I didn't have time today to go into all of them. But these sort of stick out. This speaks of a man whose story comes from a place that wasn't a silver spoon. It just tells us something. And, and so when we talk about the finding moments of David's life. We often talk about the moment that the prophet Samuel walks into the house of David's father, Jesse. And we know the story and we come to find out that he brings David before and, and he lifts up and God says, this is the one. He said, I don't look on the outward man, I look on the inward man. Find that to be interesting, it says God doesn't look on the outward man because according to scripture when you read it and you break down what it means, David was actually a, lot, a pretty handsome looking guy. He was ruddy, which has different meanings. One of them meaning sort of he was a little rough around the edges, but he, was a, he wasn't ugly. So it says, God looks on the outward, 
I mean, man looks on the outward, God looks on the inward. There's something that's, we're, we're hitting at several different things here. And we kind of got that climactic moment of David's life where Samuel reaches up with this oil. He's about to anoint David's head in front of his seven brothers, his father, and about to make David the king of Israel or proclaim David to be the next king of Israel. But I want to freeze that frame in your mind just for a second. I want you to see that young boy there somewhere between the ages of 10 to 15. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he wasn't old. He wasn't quite a child, but he wasn't old. I want you to freeze that frame in your mind. There's Samuel standing there. He's got that oil and he's dipped it over. And right before that oil begins to pour out, I want you to freeze that in your mind. And I want to hit the rewind button. I want to tell you a story. We go all the way back to David's Lineage. Trace it all the way back. There was a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi had a husband, two sons, living in the land. And uh, the famine began to strike the land. And so Naomi dis- Naomi's husband decided, we need to get out of here. Can't survive. Famine's too great. So Naomi and her husband, two sons, moved out of the land and moved to the land of Moab. While they were there surviving the famine, her two sons married two Moabite girls. One was named Ruth and the other name was Orpah. In the process of all this, Naomi's husband died. And on top of that, a little while after that, both sons died. So now Naomi is left in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. She's distraught. She's got nothing. Back in those days, if you had no husband and you had no heirs, you were nobody. You were, a, you were, you were left to the winds of, the, of, of whatever. You had nothing. You were done. So the famine was over and they decided, she decided to return back to the land where she came from, back to her homeland. And so her two daughters-in-law decided they'd go with her and try it out for a little bit. So Ruth and Orpah decided they're going to go with it. After getting back there a little time after that, Orpah decided, you know what, I'm going to go back home. But Ruth said to Naomi, I'm staying. Your people become my people. Your God's going to become my God. So we got these two characters. we got Naomi and Ruth. And the problem was, Naomi... Didn't have a husband, didn't have any heirs. Ruth was a widow, had nothing. These women had nothing. They were left to nothing. They were basically left to being beggars. And so, in order to survive their situation, Ruth, who was younger and had more strength, she would go out into the fields and she would glean. Basically what that means in a sense was is that as the fields were harvested for wheat, they would harvest the fields for wheat, as the harvesters would go throughout and they would swing their sickle and they would knock over the sheaves and they would bundle them up. As they did that, stuff would be kind of left on the ground. And they wouldn't clean it up. Because it would be left there so that those who were poor and in need would actually come behind the harvesters and they would pick up the leftovers off the ground and they would take that home and that would be there. And so depending on the generosity of the owner of the field, he would determine how much would be left over. So if he wasn't very generous, he'd actually send maybe his children or others behind the harvester and he'd even collect up all their scraps and leave nothing. But the law stated something had to be left. 
Some were very generous. They left more. And so Ruth went out to a field and she began to glean. She'd walk behind the harvesters and she's just trying to survive. She's living her life trying to survive. She's picking up these sheaves that are left over. She's picking up that. And, and she's out there one day and there's this wealthy field owner. It's his field. He's out there and he's looking at her one day and he recognizes this lady. She's different. She's wearing different clothes. She looks different. She doesn't look like Israelite. She's obviously not wearing Israelite clothes. She, she's, a, she's a foreigner. She's, a, she's different. But there's something about her. I mean, she's, she's out there in the hot sun. She's toiling. She's working. She's gleaning. She's got all this. And the Bible says that he finds favor with her. So he goes up to his harvester and says, Listen, you know, be a little sloppy today. Don't get so much. Leave more. So he began to kind of leave her more. And then, after this relationship began to bud a little bit more, he said, listen, why don't you actually just come alongside the harvesters? Forget gleaning. I'm just let you walk around. Get all you want. And then he said, you know what? When they get water, you get a water break. When they get lunch break, you're going to get a lunch break. And God, he, she found favor with this man. And so this sort of started blossoming. She goes home one day and tells Naomi, hey, guess what? Look what happened. And Naomi says, whose field is it? She goes, I think the guy's name is Boaz. And Naomi said, oh my goodness, Boaz? I'm related to Boaz. <laughs> and so like every good woman, she hatches a plan. So we're going to get our man. Woo! Hey, hey, hey. Any guy that thinks he's in charge has no clue. So Naomi says to Ruby, we got a plan. She goes, listen, he likes you, girl. He must think you good. So here's what we're going to do. When you get, get him alone and tell him that you're willing to become his wife. So Ruth says, okay. So Ruth, that, Boaz is taking care of some stuff for the harvest on the threshing floor and doing all that. So finally he gets all tired and lays down. And Ruth comes and sneaks in night and she lays down and she lays down on his feet. And Boaz wakes up, wakes up the next morning, looks down, it's like no rose, there's this figure down there. And then when he looks at it, he goes, wait a minute, I think I know that woman. And, and begins to have a conversation. Ruth says, hey, you know, here I'm giving myself and all this stuff. And Boaz was an amazing guy. There was a significant age gap between them. Some, some say that it was even double the age. I don't know, whatever that would be. Boaz says, listen, I, I would take you, but even though I'm the kinsman of Naomi, I'm not the next man in line. There's another one that's before me. So Boaz says, listen, I'll, I'll take care of it. So Boaz goes out to the city gate. City gate's not like what we would consider a door. City gate's sort of like, that was the town, town hall. That's where everybody did business. So he gathered together a group of men, the elders, and he said, he brought the other kinsmen and said, listen, fella, this is what's going to happen. And the other guy said, look, okay, fine. I'll redeem Naomi's land, but I don't want to take Ruth. I don't want that Moabite blood. I'll take Naomi, but I don't want that other one. And Boaz stood up and claimed, he said, I'll take Ruth. She'll be mine. And so Ruth was given to Boaz, and they have a, they come together, they're married. They conceive. Shortly after conceiving, Boaz dies. Ruth has a son. His name is Obed. Here's the problem. The law stated that Israelites were not supposed to marry Moabites. 
a whole issue with the way the Moabites treated the Israelites. The Israelites said, we're going to make a law. You can't marry a Moabite. But there was a loophole in the wall. Because really the law pertained to female Israelites marrying, marrying male Moabites. The law didn't really pertain to that. So Boaz knew that in the sight of the law, he was okay. But others began to question the legitimacy of who Ruth was and the legitimacy of her heir and the legitimacy of that because she was of Moabite blood. Well, things started to unfold and Obed grows older and Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. Jesse begins to grow older and Jesse suddenly finds himself a nice lady. Her name was Netzivit. Netzivit was a, a young lady. They got together. And Jesse, the Bible says, became blessed to the Lord. And he rose to be the leader of the Sanhedrin. That was the supreme court of Israel. That was like being the chief justice of America. This guy had risen. He was the supreme court justice of Israel, the Sanhedrin. They were the one that interpreted and read the law. He had seven sons. Seven sons. All this going for him. But somewhere in Jesse's life, some doubt started to creep in his head according to the accounts written in the Jewish traditions. He started to doubt. started to question, did his seed, his heirs, were they pure? Or were they tainted with Moabite blood? Was there an issue here because, because of what Boaz and Ruth had done and it had been passed down in Obed and the bloodline was so important? Were these seven sons even legitimate? Was I even legitimate? Was there something wrong with me? Am I legitimate? So he began to question and began to, to grapple with the fact, what if my sons aren't even truly pure heirs? And not only that, what if I have caused Netzevit to sin because as an Israelite woman sleeping with a Moabite-blooded man, I've caused her to be an heir. And so he, he decided, I'm not going to have any more relations or any more children with Netzevit. I'm going to cut her off. He didn't cut her off out of spite. He cut her off because he loved her and didn't want to have her sleeping with someone of Moabite blood. And so he desired, I've got to have an heir. It, I've got to have an heir. So he hatched a plan. Oh, Jesse had a plan. He decided, I'm going to sleep with my wife's maidservant. She's of Canaanite blood. And that way, when I have an heir with her, it will be of pure blood. Canaanite woman, maidservant, heard of this plan. She went to Nedzevet and she said, listen, this is what Jesse's going to do. I'm not comfortable with this. I don't want to do this. So they hatched a plan. When it was time for Jesse to come in and to conceive with the Canaanite maidservant, the maidservant and Nitzevit pulled an old switcheroo on Jesse. And Jesse, thinking that he was sleeping with the maidservant, actually was sleeping with Nitzevit. She conceived. All of a sudden, several months later, she starts showing. Problem was, how she get pregnant? Because last time I checked, we cut off relations. And how'd you end up pregnant? She didn't tell Jesse 
that she had made the switch because she didn't want to embarrass him. She didn't want to bring shame to him because of what he had tried to do. So she kept it a secret. And when her seven sons found out that she had done this, they hated their mother because they thought their mother had committed a horrible sin. But Jesse said, no, we're not going to do this to her. We're going to show mercy for her. We're going to let her live. So Netzevet conceived this child. He was born. His name was David. But then we start to see how this child unfolded. He's number eight. But he's not really a part of the family. Because his birth and conception are clouded in this mystique that his mother had committed this terrible act. Even though he had the blood, he was of lineage, he was where he was, his brothers hated him. So Jesse was like, we'll take care of this. Hey David, go out in the field, take care of the sheep. We find out later, out in that field, there were lions, bears, You're going to send a 10-year-old out to a field to take care? I have a 6-year-old, an an almost 9-year-old, an 11-year-old. I would not send them out to a field that I thought there were wild animals. I know, well, the time was different back then. I don't care. You still love your child. I wouldn't send them out there. But it makes me wonder, did they send David out there because they were hoping that the animals would make the problem go away? Problem solved. There goes the bear. Problem solved. There goes the lion. So when David comes home one day and says, guess what I did today? I killed the lion. You what? That wasn't a part of the plan. Oh, you just got lucky. You're going back out there again. David goes back there again several times later. He comes back home, guess what? Remember that lion I killed? I got one better than that. I killed a bear. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? You killed a lion and my plan is not working. And so God finally speaks to Samuel and tells Samuel, you're going to go down to Jesse's house and you're going to anoint it. And the Bible says in, in 1 Samuel that when Samuel showed up to the council of the, of the men of Israel, they were trembling with fear at the man of God when he walked in. That's how much respect they had for the man of God. So I want you to get that in the mind. These guys, when Samuel walked in, everyone knew he was the voice of God and they were shook by him. So when he walks in and he says to Jesse, I want your seven sons, the man who was the head of Sanhedrin, who respected the man of God and the prophet of God, didn't even register in his mind that he had an eighth son out there. That's how much he despised that eighth son. The respect he had for the man of God and the trembling of the man of God. He didn't even care about that because he's like, that's not even my boy. Yeah, I've let him live out of the respect for his mother, but that boy is impure. That boy was born in sin. He was shaping in iniquity. He's not even my child. And then... He goes down the line. Son number one, son number two, no. Son number three, four, five. Jesse's like, well, it's got to be. Son number seven, Jesse's like, that's got to be it. Seven, God's number. 
And Samuel goes, not it. And he looks at Jesse and says, you got any other children? Uh, I don't know. There's this kid. Oh, do we have to, Samuel? Oh, someone go get David. Hopefully, please let it be a line of bear something. Get him this time. I'm sure Jesse was hoping he'd come back and say, look, we were going to get David, but the bear finally got him. I imagine, I got to imagine when David showed up in that house, Jesse wasn't all thrilled. Because here's the story. doesn't tell us in the biblical text, but the Jewish Jewish history tells us what happened. That David comes back to the house to Netzavit, and Netzavit says, what are you doing back to the field? He said, I've been summoned to the house by the prophet. And he washes up and he gets clean. And the Bible and, and, and the story goes that David goes to the house and that Zevit follows at a distance. And when he comes to the house and he stands before the prophet and he gets that horn of oil and we're back to that picture, right? We started with that same picture. We freeze in the frame. Outside in the courtyard, the story says that there was a sound of weeping as that Zevit sat there with tears flowing down her face. Because she knew the significance of the moment and the secret that she had kept all these years. And the fact that now the secret that she had kept it was about to be recognized by the man of God as the heir to the throne. And as the, air, the oil poured down Sam, the, David's head, tears flowed down Zevit's face as she saw that boy who was shaped in iniquity. And in sin was conceived according to everybody's standards. Anointed by God. And said, this is a man after my own heart. You see, we spend so much time trying to erase our past. We spend so much time trying to change our story. But you see... The pain of his past is what drove him to a field. And it was in that field with the beast and the lions and the tigers when he was rejected by his brothers and casted out by society and driven away by shame. It was in that field that he found God. And if it wasn't for the story, but you know, he would have never found God. So what should have been something that shamed him was something that elevated him. Instead of it being a place of cancellation where he was canceled because of his shame, God took him to a field to cultivate him, to make him into a shepherd so he could become the shepherd of the house of Israel. You see, today, I come here to tell somebody today that you claim that your defining moment is because of the shame and the things that happened in your life and the hurt and the pain you went through. And you look at God and say, God, why was I born in sin and shaped in iniquity? And you're like David and you say, my heart is shattered. My inner man is crushed. My emotions have been turned to powder because of what I've been through. But you don't know. It's your story Because the Bible says he draws nigh to those who are shattered 
in the inward man. He seeks for those whose emotions have been crushed to powder. So what you think eliminates you is what God is drawn by. And you seek so much time trying to get God to fix your past because it brings you so much hurt and pain. And I believe God can heal past. I've seen God do miracles the past. I believe it. But I know one thing is that your past doesn't eliminate you because it's your past that God is drawn to. Why would God choose to sit on the throne of a man whose whole life was shrouded in question and shame? Why wouldn't God have chosen somebody whose world was pure? Oh, but you see, it didn't happen much longer after that. When he showed up, the angel showed up to a young girl and said, you're going to conceive a child. His name is going to become Jesus. And he goes to Joseph and says, um, uh, uh, I'm pregnant. Well, how'd you get pregnant? You're never going to believe the story. The angel of the Lord told me I was pregnant. I've heard that one before, sure. And Jesus chose to walk in the shadow of shame. Because it says he was moved by the feelings of our infirmity. I don't know what burden and weight you're carrying of your past that thinks it's so heavy that God cannot penetrate. Because when He formed His own story, He did not make one of perfection, but He made one stained and shrouded in shame. He said, not only is the throne I'm going to sit on be one covered in shame, but my own birth is going to be covered in shame. You can't tell me that He did not hear the whispers of those going, isn't that Joseph's boy? Well... They say it's Joseph's boy. It don't look anything like Joseph. And Mary, something about angels and stuff. We don't know what happened. You don't mean he heard that? Why did he hear all that? Why would he choose to do that? Oh, I know there's scriptural typology and all that nonsense, but that doesn't have a little bit hill of beans to me today. You know what it means to me today? He did that because he wanted to know when he looked at your story and looked at your pain, he would be able to say, I know how you feel because I walked the steps you walked in. Every whisper you've heard, every snipe you've heard, every accusation that you've heard echo on, or you've listened to, or every Facebook post that stuck you deep, he knew and felt and heard already because he said, I walked the same road. Not only did I walk the same road, but I had my ancestors walk the same road too. I had, a, I had a throne. My throne that I sit on was one that came from one who walked the same road. Why? Because there's a, on that throne that God sits on, is set in a story of shame. Why? Because he wanted you to know there's nothing in you that dismisses you. In fact, it's that shame, it's that hurt, it's that brokenness that he actually is drawn to. You spent so much time trying to eliminate. I know we've all made mistakes. You see, the thing about it was David didn't do anything wrong. Come on, dude, didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He's just a kid. Tell me something he did wrong. It's one thing if he'd have done something wrong. He was rejected for something he didn't even do. He was a victim. It's one thing. Listen, I get it. It's one thing if you do something. 
you know, you got to deal with that. It's a whole other thing when something's done to you that you had no control over. And you've got to live with that. You've got to live with that burden. It's one thing when I'm the one that, that I, me, I've done stuff. I've made mistakes. I've got to live with that. But when you've had stuff done to you, that's a whole different world. You've got to live with that. And every day David got up and went to the field. He carried that backpack of shame with him. As his other brothers went off to school, as his other brothers went off to learn about the father's business, to become like the father, to learn how to run the family business, to learn how to be like the father, there went David. Where's David going? Out in the field. Oh boy, I hope today he gets, that bear finally gets him. And David walked out in the field every day carrying that bag of shame. But every step he took, God was saying, come on, let me go right with you. Come on. Every step David took, God was right. In fact, God even changed his whole way of doing things because of that boy that was covered in shame, was crying out in a pasture. And God came out to that pasture to visit him when he didn't do that with anybody else. Do you know God sees your pain and sees your shame? He doesn't see anybody else's today. He only sees you. In this room today filled with people, you're the only one. And what you don't realize here today, when you leave, you've got to take your story with you. I can't erase your story. It's your story. But you don't realize when you watch you out, God's going to say, come on, let's go. Because every step you take, I'm going to stay with you. Everywhere you go, I'm going to walk with you. Why? Because I'm just God and I know so much. He's going to say, no, because I've walked the road. You've walked and I've stepped in the steps you've stepped into. And every tear you cry, every hurt you've got, God said, I got you. I've been there. I know what it feels like. I've been in that pain. I've gone through that. Why? Because you know what? Instead of that place pushing me away from God, get away from here. You just, you're, you're, just, you're no damaged goods. That's what people do, right? Come on, let's be honest with you. Let's just get down where you're living, okay? How many times have you been married? Four times? Woo! Something's wrong with you. You've been married four times. You're damaged goods. No one puts that on their profile on match.com. Married 11 times. Love long walks to the beach. Reading books. By the way, 11 times. (laughs) Email me. (laughs) You don't do that. Because we know, if people know my story, they're not going to want anything to do with me. But God's not like that. Instead, God wants to say, hey, not only do I know your story, I was there when your story was being written. Because I was the author of it. But you see, your story was not meant to be written. And that was the end. Because I am the author and the finisher. So some of you today, your defining moment is not even written yet. Because what you think is your defining moment is just the opening chapter of the first page of your book. Because the defining moment is yet to come. Because the defining moment is going to come when the holy anointing of God puts it over you and pours down on you say, you're no longer damaged goods, but you're my chosen one. 
Your story doesn't define you. I'm the one that defines you. Man looks on the outward. Man defines you by your story. Man defines you by your pedigree. Man defines you by your mistake. But I look on the heart. I don't see your story. I don't see your pedigree. I don't see your mistakes. I see your heart. I see your heart. Leon Carroll, God sees your heart. Sees it. Doesn't see anything else. You see it all, but He doesn't see it. That's the Holy Ghost talking to you, son. He sees it. He doesn't see anything else. He just sees your heart. And God is the only one that's able to peer past all the junk and all the nonsense and all the stuff in our life and see down where we are. Man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. My defining moment is not even written yet. Because there's an anointing coming into my life. Yeah, you may have rejected me. You may have written me off. You may think I'm no good. You may think I've been stained in shame and covered in shame, as David said. I was an alien to my own brothers. But God said, that's a boy after my own heart. You know what today? God is not intimidated by your story. Because God sees your heart. God is not tainted by your mistakes because He sees your heart. God is not driven away because of your mistakes. He draws nigh because of your heart. Only God can do that. We human beings, we don't have the ability to do that. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You will not fool me thrice. Because that's what we do. God doesn't do that. What is your defining moment going to be today? Is your defining moment going to be the fact that Ned Zivit conceived in sin and I'm just a product of a mistake? Or is your defining moment going to be the fact that God doesn't see the outward, but that God sees the inward man? What is your definition today of who you are? What are you letting define you today? Are you letting the definition of society? Are you letting the definition of mistakes? Are you letting the definition of friends, family? How about this? A mother or a father who told you, you're no good. You've made too many mistakes. You'll never be any good. I don't want you. You're not even my daughter. You're not even my son. God forbid a parent ever says that, but unfortunately in the world we live in, it happens. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. You've made too many mistakes. And God's saying, I'm not looking at the mistakes. Because all I see is a heart. All I see is a heart. And I've got an oil of anointing. That's my spirit that I'm just going to pour all over you because I'm not looking at your pedigree. I'm looking at your heart. You see, the problem is, and I close with this, if David had walked in there and Samuel said, Son, God's chosen you. But wait a minute, Samuel. It can't be me. I've been out in the field. I don't even qualify. I'm a reject. I'm no good. We come out, fight, we find out later as David wrote out his life, he had some terrible feelings about himself. He didn't feel so good about himself. He wrote his story. Still, Sam, you can't do that. But Sam said, Son, God's chosen you. Jesse's sitting there going, Are you kidding me? His seven brothers sitting there going, Are you joking me? Are you crazy? 
We come to find out their attitude when he shows up to, at the battlefield where Goliath was. They're like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. You don't belong here. You're not even qualified to be out here. And then there's a prophet saying, God's anointing you. Those guys had to be out of their mind. Why? Because God said, I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how you dress. I don't care what your mistakes are. I don't care what your past is. I don't care about your hurt. I don't care about your rejection. I don't care what society says. I don't care what your family says. I don't care what the world around you says. I just look at the heart. I just care about the heart. And God peered through all that nonsense and saw that boy's heart and said, that's the boy that I'm going to make my next king. And when Jesus showed up, he said, I've come to sit on the throne of shame. I've come to sit on the throne of shame because I've come to sit on the throne of David. The one born in shame. I'm going to sit on that throne because when you come to me with your shame, I'm going to always say, I'm here to meet you because I've got my own. Because I was born. In shame. I know your feeling. What's your defining moment going to be today? I don't know who you are today. I don't know who you are, but I felt the Lord this week impress this upon my spirit. I've never preached this before in my life. I've never talked about this before in my life, but I felt impressed on the Lord this week to do this because I felt there was somebody here today that you are so defined by mistakes. You're so defined by the world around you. You're so defined by who you are and what's been done to you and that you can't seem to get past that. But I've come to tell you today that when God looks at you, He does not see that. He sees your heart. That's all He wants. Right now, would you just take just a moment, close your eyes and bow your head. And I want you just in your own way to pray a very simple prayer. And you say to God, God, I don't have much to offer you. Oh, I don't have really much to give you. I've got mistakes and I've got shame and I've got hurt and I've got pain and I've got rejection and I've got all this stuff. God, I don't have anything really to offer you. But I do offer you one thing, God. I want to give you my heart today. God, I want to give you my heart. Tell God that. You're not making a commitment to a church. You're not making a commitment to a, to a belief system. You're talking to God because that's who matters in this room right now. God wants to know, will you give me your heart? Despite of your mistakes, despite of your failures, will you give me your heart today? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Would you just do me a favor right now? I feel like the Lord is moving in this place. Would you be so kind just to reach over next to somebody right now and just p- put your hand on them or take them by the hand and let's just pray right now that God is moving in this place. Come on, I felt the Holy Ghost in this place. Talk to somebody. But there's a cross of Calvary. There's blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed in this place today because God cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. He doesn't care about your story. He doesn't care about your mistakes. He doesn't care about what others say about you. He cares about your heart. If you would give Him a heart today, that's all He's asking for. Don't let yourself be but be, be defined by mistakes or by what others say about you. But let God define you today by your heart.